an interesting world we live in and I think true self-care, actually looking out for yourself and recognizing who is lifting you up. And you know, they're the kinds of people that you vibe with as well and have that relationship with. That's a skill, you know, and as you say, like if you're in pain, you resonate with other people that are in pain. So actually leveraging yourself out of it, it's really good to be around people who are going to help you do that. And yeah, I mean, that's exactly what you were saying about like, you know, finding the right people to talk to, like what you guys do and finding coaches that are like in it for the right reasons. Welcome to the 1000 Days Sober Podcast. My name is Lee Davey. I'm not an alcoholic. I refuse to be anonymous. I am someone that doesn't drink alcohol. I spend every waking moment of my life helping other people do the same like right now. I'm going to be talking to Sam Goldfinch. But before I do, if you want to change your life, if you want to become someone that doesn't drink alcohol, doesn't smoke cigarettes, doesn't have a porn addiction, doesn't have a gambling addiction, doesn't have a sugar problem, doesn't have a workaholic problem, whatever your problem is, If you really want to live a kick-ass life and you want to overcome these impediments to your progress, then go over to www.1000daysober.com and book a session with me and see what we can do to help you out. We have an expansive team of coaches over at 1000 Days Sober that deal with trauma, deal with stress and anxiety, cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, uh, meditation, transformational coaching, health and wellness, intuitive healing, Whatever, we got it all here. So pop on board and uh, get on board our train and we will uh, take you to Kick-Ass Life Station, okay? Also, get over to that website, to the podcast page, and check out this one, Sam Goldfinch. Sign up and we'll give you the show notes and you get all the links to his work, okay? All right. For the past two years, Sam has been writing about thriving without alcohol on his site, unaddicted.co.uk. Having spent years under the spell of alcohol, he understands the feeling of helplessness that can come from addiction. Thankfully, a series of life circumstances, the words of others, and seemingly disconnected events conspired to finally set him free. Okay. He has lived all around the world in different places uh, as a part-time English teacher and just kind of world traveler. And uh, six months ago, he started his new coaching venture called The Wild Way. All right. Now, this is uh, almost five years uh, free of alcohol. So we talk about The Wild Way. Uh, we talk about his blog, Unaddicted. We talk about traveling. We talk about masculinity. We talk about just presence and just basically living life without being chained uh, to this uh, monster called alcohol. Right. So without further ado, I'll shut the hell up, leave you in the capable hands of Sam Goldfinch. Sam Goldfinch, how are you doing, my friend? Good, pal. Yeah, it's been a good day. Thanks. How about you? Uh, absolutely fantastic. I had a really good start to the day. I had a really great uh, coaching call with somebody, and then I went to the park with my daughter. And, um, you know, let's start there, actually. Like, I, in my coaching call this morning, uh, the person I was speaking to, he's going to be a father, you know, and I was saying to him, what do you want to be? How, what kind of father do you want to be? You know? And he said, um, I want to be there like and around them and stuff. And I realized like in that moment that there's a big difference between being present and being present. Right. So like when my daughter comes up to me and goes, Oh my God, wow. I just seen a ladybird. It's like, wow, you've just seen a ladybird. Let me have a look at that. As opposed to the Korean woman this morning who had her like five-year-old child and she was just walking around on the phone like this for like an hour while the kid just played on his own, you know, and every now and then he would tug on a skirt and 
for me, drinking took away that presence. Uh, I, I don't know what it was like for you, if you want to open up there. Yeah, man. I mean, like, it's funny, you know, like we were having a quick chat, weren't we, before you clicked the uh, record button about waking up and this, and for me, I would say that kind of happened when I was about 18. I didn't really know I was asleep. I read the power now and it was like, bang. And it was for the first time ever, that kind of thing of like, you're not your thoughts was like really impacted me. Um, and although I like went deep into things like addiction after that, that never really left me. Like that, there was still, there was, it planted that seed. Um, and yeah, I mean, I really feel as if there were two parts of me battling and part of the kind of, kind of spiritual pain, I guess I was in through my twenties. I sort of tried to deal with, with drinking as well. I think as well as doing a lot of meditating and, you know, training to be a yoga teacher and doing all sorts of different things. So there were these two parts of me that were completely at war with each other. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I, I get you. The, the present moment is, is infinitely deep and very powerful. And if we can learn how to tap into it, then yeah, like that thing, like small moments with your daughter, man, like that's really, really special stuff. And like, you're either there or you're not like, yeah, big stuff. And, and realizing, so, so I guess, coming from it from a foundational piece where you want to be present with everybody all the time, understanding that's a challenge and realizing when you're not present, as opposed to being a complete and utter zombie who is never there. And I think when somebody's talking to me, for example, and I've just, I'm just not, I've just not listened to it. Like I am completely thinking about something completely different, right? That, that for me is a lack of practice because I was a zombie for 35 years. So, so for me, not being present for someone was the norm. And it's only in the last 10 years that I'm trying to get better at that, you know? Yeah, man. I mean, we're, I mean, as humans, like we, you know, we think, I think there's this real, like quite strong misperception by a lot of people that when you become, even if you become quite a seasoned meditator, that you kind of just stop thinking. Uh, they kind of, <laughs> fail to realize that it's, it's your relationship with your thought. And as you say, like every time you come back to presence, it's kind of like a muscle, kind of like going to the gym, like one flex of your muscle. It's like the, the magic is in every time you think you failed, it's like, no, 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 that's the magic. That means that you've, you're back where you're supposed to be. Yeah. So, and I think people can beat themselves up about how, how not present they are, but mm. that's where the gold is. Um, mm. And, you know, I, it's funny how the more and more present I've become, Often I feel like my mind is outrageously busy and I wonder how much of that is just because I'm like given enough space to even notice that that is happening now. Mm. Um, 100%, yeah. I also think is, you know, relationship-wise, you know, very often when I talk to people and help with people who are in relationships, like their core relationship is really super important to them. And there's all different ways that you can improve your relational literacy, communication skills, that kind of thing. But just being present for somebody more than you're not is a surefire way to get yourself connected than any other thing. Dude, man, listening is the greatest gift. And I mean, so training to be a coach, like it's really interesting if you do anything like that, because one, it sounds simple on paper. You just listen to people and ask questions. But at the end of the day, like genuinely holding space with someone, it's such a magical gift. And actually listening at that level is, yeah, it's powerful. And like, I, I say this to people all the time when they're looking for a coach or anything like that, or in a relationship like you're saying with your partner, actually it's, you can come at it from like, oh, this person needs to have this many qualifications or this person needs to be like this, or they need to have all these different attributes. But honestly, if you can hold space together and hold the silence together, 
that is magic. Like you are in a, I mean, that is a magical, magical thing. And it seems so simple, but it's infinitely deep. Trying to, that practice is, is a lifetime's work at the end of the day. Mm. I think for me as well, when I was drinking, I surrounded myself with drinkers mm-hmm. and we were, all, we were all pretty much cut from the same cloth. So I imagine, I can imagine this scenario like when I'm listening to you, so let's say you're one of my mates, you're talking to me about Eckhart Tolle and the power now. I'm kind of thinking about the football and then I start talking about Eckhart Tolle and then he's thinking about the football. So again, you don't get an opportunity to practice because of who you're, you're around. But like when you said about coaching, for example, when you're with a coach and they're teaching you how to kind of think and behave and act differently, equally, if you surround yourself with people who are uh, seasoned meditators, who are more spiritual in being, who are uh, more present, great, better listeners, you, there's nowhere to hide. Like you, you just end up like, you know, going up a few gears, right? You're naturally up level. I don't know who said it, but there's that really poignant quote, isn't there? The, uh, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Yeah. And to me, like it's, it's so true. Yeah. And like, if you, I think that's why it's so important to, you know, it's really hard, particularly if you've been a drinker for a long time and you've got relationships that you feel, you know, and you've always felt as if they were strong. And then you start to realize that as you, if you stop that, wow, actually, I'm not sure what foundations these relationships were built on. Mm. Um, and you quite quickly start to realize people that you perhaps didn't, you don't have a lot in common with and actually letting them go. It doesn't always have to happen, but if it does, like it can be really difficult because they're yeah. things that you've like held on to for so long. Um, so that's a real challenge. That can be really tough. I think. Mm. I find there's a, like there's a paradox seated within that. Whereas if I have a friend that is not providing me with any value or I feel that they're um, being, you know, they're toxic in some way. So I want to, preface this by saying I have a lot of friends who are beautiful people, but because they drink, that is toxic to me. Like I, I don't want to be in those environments and I don't want to be around them when they're drinking, but it doesn't mean that they're not beautiful, amazing people outside of that. So I'm not saying everybody's just toxic throughout, but toxic to me means they're engaging in something or they're talking about something or they believe in something that, that, that is like really contrary to the way I want to, I want to live my life, you know? And, um, for me, when it comes to letting people like that go uh, in the past, and not so much today because I've done a lot of that kind of culling, if you like, when I, when I think about it, it's, it's always, oh, what are people going to think of me if I tell them that I love them, but I no longer want to be their friend? Like, what are they going to think of me? And, but if you think of that paradox, it's actually your wounded ego, like your wounded self that is making it more difficult. So when you say things like, oh, I can't let these friends go because I'm really tight. Really, what is really going on? And for me, it was always attached to wounded ego selves. Like, oh, it's going to reflect bad on me if I let these people go. Yet if I shift myself to like my higher self and then I deal with it in a very beautiful way, then there's none of this toxic thought of mine that is like related to my wounded ego. And people, they may turn around and say, oh, what a fucking prick this guy is. Um, but that in itself is like a good reason why you're just letting them go. Or they might just be like, yeah, okay, totally understand it, dude. And, and your relationship just melts into the ether. But I think doing it from a higher place as opposed to doing it from your wounded ego is, is the best thing to do. So again, you know, listening to uh, what Sam has to say, checking out the unaddicted blog, taking the wild way coaching course and all that, all that kind of stuff is going to get you into a place to then to be able to deal with your relationships in a lot better way. 
Yeah, man, it's like that up-leveling thing, like surrounding yourself with people who put you in a good place. And, you know, we're all, it's a really, it's interesting how you say like this kind of like not black and white stuff where like you, it's impossible. It's, we're all like beautiful people. We're all beautiful beings underneath it. And a lot of us partake in, da- in a lot of damaging behaviors and a lot of things unknowingly. Mm. Um, and nobody is perfect. But there are like, in turn, when it comes to consciousness, I think we live in a world where we, just because you've known somebody for 10 years, or just because an idea exists, we seem to, it's really difficult, as you say, if, you, if you've got that wounded ego, to be able to find the kind of emotional strength to say, okay, like, but it's not a good enough reason for me to stay with someone who's maybe bringing me down or, mm. or damaging me, or just because my friend has this idea doesn't mean that I have to defend that person. You know, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting world we live in. And I think true self-care, actually looking out for yourself and recognizing who is lifting you up. And, you know, the, the kinds of people that you vibe with as well and have that relationship with, that's a skill, you know? And as you say, like, if you're in pain, you resonate with other people that are in pain. So mm-hmm. actually leveraging yourself out of it, it's really good to be around people who are going to help you do that. And yeah, I mean, that's exactly what you were saying about like, you know, finding the right people to talk to, like what you guys do and mm. finding coaches that are like in it for the right reasons. It's powerful stuff, really powerful stuff. It can make a huge difference in someone's life for sure. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a big difference between pain and <clears throat> there can be a big difference between pain and melancholy. Like, I mean, how can I put this? So when you was talking just then, I was thinking of my parents. So a good, ex- a good example of um, societal conditioning saying that you need to have a relationship with certain people is parents, right? Like I have to have a relationship with my parents because they're my parents. They gave birth to me. They looked after me. And if I don't have a relationship with my parents, then the world's going to think there's something wrong with me. Like I'm defective or I'm weird or I'm rude or whatever. Right. But do we really have to have a relationship with our parents if we get no value out of that relationship, if we feel that that relationship is toxic, you know, it's like, um, you know, for me, you know, it's, it's difficult for me to have a relationship with my parents. Like it really is because they're just, we just, they just don't see me. They don't see me. So, so those conversations we have, you know, they're, they're very kind of like few and far between, you know, and I was, going to go into a point but i completely lost my train of thought as happens yeah i was completely into it so i completely lost my train of thought but it will come back to me yeah and you know i i think my like bullshit radar is quite good nowadays and and by turn and i sort of when i go into conversations with people i really enjoy a good chat in fact it's something that really really lights me up it's probably one of my greatest joys i've always taught I've always been in some sort of way, all through my sort of career, I've been involved in education in some way. And just connecting with people is just a, is a beautiful thing. But I think I quite quickly figure out when there's no point. You know, you <laughs> might, for me, this is that comes back to that hierarchy of ideas thing again. Like, at the end of the day, I'm not going to stand here and pretend that if someone's got an idea that to me doesn't seem based in love and it's based in fear and they're not going to budge and they're just going to attack me. Like I won't even enter the conversation now. That mm. definitely wasn't true eight years ago, for example, in my, but whenever it was, you know, however many years ago, I would have gone into the conversation, not sort of knowing how my ego was like clinging to it, wanting to like have that kind of altercation with that person these days. Like I have no interest in proving that anything is right or wrong. I just, mm. I have kind of my intuitive feeling of like what, what 
you know, what are nice ideas to hold and what, what's positive and what bring people up, as, as we've been saying. And if I'm around people that I feel are not like that, I, I just walk away these days. Yeah. Um, I have far fewer people in my circle, to be honest mm. with you, but they're, they're, to me, they're much higher quality people. And I mean that in the, like you yeah, said, yeah. I don't mean that in an, in an, in, in an offensive way. Well, it's, really, it's really, I mean, that actually, what you said brought me back on track to what my point was is that there's a difference between like I find I find personally that there's great connection to be had in melancholy and sadness and pain and suffering. So I find more connection and I, yeah, I find myself getting onto a deeper level on those aspects more than joy and happiness really. But there's a big difference between having a deep conversation about somebody's pain and suffering at a high, at a, like at a higher frequency than having a conversation, say, with my mum and dad about pain and suffering when they're mired in their wounded self and they're mired in their pain and suffering and it's just full of excuses, moaning, complaining, groaning, gossiping. And it, that, that I cannot abide that. Like that is just like, oh my God, I cannot have another conversation about the fucking price of tuna. I'm not interested in how much a can of tuna is, right? As opposed to I just want to open up to you, Lee. Uh, my father raped me when I was younger, right? Like, and just being a container and being there for them and, and witnessing that beautiful vulnerability of trust of opening up to you. It's like completely different experience or like, you know, I feel like I've got no friends and everybody hates me right now. And, but, but not like wallowing in the self-pity of it, but just really releasing that emotion. You know, that, that for me is like, true depth and connection. And when it comes to friends or the people in my circle, I want people to feel comfortable and trust me to do that in that safe container. And that means actually I don't have the bandwidth to have more, like too many of them. Whereas in the past, when they, I could have like a million friends because I never had to expand too much energy around them because I never had that kind of emotional transference. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. I think in order to be a, like suffering is part of the human experience and like it's change happens, right? The only thing that's permanent is change. Like it's, it's constant, we're constant flux all the time and we think we're not, you know, we, we think that everybody else is going to die and we're not. Mm. We think that we all, we operate under all these like crazy thought patterns every single day and it causes us to suffer. And I think being able to recognize suffering and have some slight distance from it. So like Ramdas is kind of used to always say things like, you know, it's the difference between I am depressed and, oh, look at this depression kind of yeah, thing. Like, yeah, yeah. Just that slight connection seems small, but it's huge. Mm. And if you are 100% convinced that you are your thought processes, then you get lost in this, you know, and if you've got a small world as well, you know, you get lost in this thing. And I, I sat the other day outside a cafe my mum and dad's hometown and listened to a lady going on and on and on about people going the wrong way around the wrong, the one way system because of all this COVID stuff that's going on. And I just thought that I just sit and I think to myself, Oh my God, like this, this, the poor dude set opposite was just like, clearly like he'd been, you know, listening to this for however many years, 30 years, 35 years being tortured by this. Hmm. And I just, you know, but for that lady in that chair, like it's not that it's her fault. Like, you, in order to be able to have that level up, to be able, you need some kind of, often there's an event that happens or something that happens in your life to like shift you. Mm. I mean, I guess in the tradition, they talk about karma. This is like their idea would be like karma. 
yeah. I mean, and I mean, how I mean, my beliefs around that are not necessarily strictly in line with that. But I guess there is, there are certain things that happen, be it trauma, be it your response to that, or the people that surround you after you've had a trauma that can either cause you to flower or close. Mm. Um, and you're right. Like it's, there's an addictive nature to sitting in your thoughts and just mellowing in them. And, but there is a difference and you're right. I agree with you as well. Like, you know, sharing people, talking to people about suffering and is, is, is a powerful thing. It is a deep way to connect and compassion comes into that. But I think it's about not giving an energy to the other person that, as you say, strengthens that it's about lifting each other out. And that is a, that, that's something that some people will do naturally. Other people will learn to do. And some people, I don't know if they'll get there. Mm. Uh, this is this is where I think being someone that doesn't drink alcohol really helps. So, like a, a good example is a friend of mine the other day. Um, we started using Marco Polo this video video recording app. So he's a teacher, and he would um, he was leaving me a, a long message, like really kind of low energy about this coworker teacher, about everything about how annoying this person is to him and how much suffering he is going through as a result of this person being in his life. Right. And then there was another video with the same and then another video with the same. Now, had I been someone who was still drinking back, you know, before the age of 35, I probably would have carried on that like conversation and that energy. I would have gossiped with him. I would have laughed. I would have turned it into a joke. I would have ridiculed the woman and, and, and allowed him to feel that his experience is real and justified in the way that he's thinking. But now I don't drink and I'm, and I'm more kind of like really focused because drinking, not drinking has allowed me to be more focused on where I put my thoughts and how I think and how I present myself to the world. I was able to say to him, okay, Unless there is a point to this, unless you want my help or, you know, there is some healthy kind of like discharge here, I don't want to continue this conversation about this person because it just sounds like gossiping and you're not really doing anything other than spewing the shit on me, right? So I love you dearly, but, uh, you know, unless we can put some boundaries around this and and some framework that's going to help us to navigate around this, such as whoa, what's coming up for you right now as a result of the, why is this woman triggering you? How can you take control of this situation? 100% responsibility um, and not kind of blame. So if we can have those conversations, I'm fine with it, but don't just spew over me. So the reason I'm saying that is like when people are thinking, should I give up drinking? Should I not give up drinking? It's like the benefits of being someone who's suddenly more present and more aware of their thoughts and with it because they're not kind of like drugging themselves. It, we don't think about these things when we're going through the, the you know, the, the to-do list in our head about whether I should stop drinking or not. It's generally just, will I lose me mates? Will my wife stay with me? Will my friends think I'm a dick? Um, what am I going to do when I'm stressed out? What am I going to do when the voices come up? But there's another nuanced level to it. I think you've wrote about like the pink cloud phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. People are like, oh, what happens next? This goes really as far as you want it to go, right? hundred percent, man. Like I found myself after, like you sort of go through different evolution change after you've stopped doing something like drinking. It's so all encompassing. There's such a huge part of your life. You realize that like, even if you have a day where you don't drink, you are absolutely just being pulled apart by the chemical, you know, ups and downs that are that drug. And I think we, 
we give alcohol way too much fucking credit uh-huh. for like making us feel good and all this stuff because it makes us feel shit. So we think the opposite is that it makes us feel good as well. When actually it's a lot of the time it's just taking away that feeling of like negativity. And yeah, you get to the point, I think after a while where you think you've, you're like, yes, I've cracked it. Everything's great. Pink clouds, everything's feeling really good. And then life kind of levels out again. And then it's about figuring out what it is that made you drink. You know, what are your real reasons that you got yourself in that pickle in the first place? And that can be walking through the fire. And that's like, like round two. And then I think, you know, as you say, it's never ending. And it, and it is for all. Um, yeah, I think it would be even if we never dropped, touched a drop of alcohol. We just really complicate life, man, by doing that. Like we just sort of, I feel like I had 10 years of my life where I just, you know, emotionally was just all over this show. The difference between me over the course of the last five years and the 15 previous to that, my God, like I have accomplished more in the last two than I accomplished in the last 13. Mm. And that is, it's not even, it's not very easy to put into a box, is it? As you say, like there's this clarity element. There's this like ability to be able to take on life's challenges and know that you're strong enough to handle them without anything. I mean, there are so many layers to the, to the positive sides of, of not drinking anymore. It just goes on and on and on. And I feel like, you know, I, I'm still like evolving and changing. And as is as a, the, my kind of relationships with my connections with people and, and unaddicted is kind of, I haven't actually been posting on unaddicted all that much because <coughs> I am shifting again out with somebody who, you know, the one thing about being on Instagram and being somebody who, who's in the kind of world that we are is that, a lot yeah, I just end up talking about not drinking all the time and uh-huh. there are so many other parts to me that but like at times it can feel like a bit of a box yeah you know and I have that friction where I'm like you know this I want to I'm always going to want to help people in that space it's like a passion obviously because of where I've where I've come from but um there are so many other things I want to help people with too the spiritual quest is about so much more than just giving up substances as you say in fact that can just be the beginning for a lot of people yeah the call that I had before you you know I always ask this magic button question. So I, I ask them to tell me how much they love alcohol or cocaine or smoking or whatever it is. <clears throat> and then I'm like, okay, so we could have this magic button and we press it. Like all that stuff is going to, all that value is going to disappear. Like, are you ready? Are you up for that? And this guy was like, <clears throat> no, I wouldn't press that button because um, I, I'm not ready to quit drinking alcohol forever. <clears throat> I still harbor this view that I can control it. Right. And I said, well, that's, that's cool because uh, 1000 days sober, we're we're not about alcohol. We're about coaching and guiding you to live a kick-ass life. So, um, that has always been my mantra. When I, when I realized, see, I stopped drinking after reading Alan Carr's easy way to control alcohol. So Mm -hmm. I stopped, I stopped and then I'm like, you know, the pink clouds. Woo. Yeah. I've done something that nobody else ever done before. And and I was able to celebrate really early because I really knew I wasn't going to drink. Like it was like not even a question. I knew I was done. But then everything in my life fell apart. And then I was like, shit, where's Alan Carr? Oh, well, he's dead. Like he died. Um, there was n- the, the coaching system and everything. Just, it didn't seem right for me at the time. You know, because I think like coaching relationships, they need to feel right in the moment. And I wasn't ready for that kind of relationship. But the book didn't take me far enough. And that is why I got into it and said to myself, I want to create something that is in perpetuity, like it never ends and that people never want to leave. 
that they they feel like they've got to continue to evolve and they don't have to go anywhere else. So so once they stop drinking and their marriage falls apart, we can help them with that. Once they become a father, we can help them with that. So you know that was yeah. really important to me. What what to talk a little bit more about why you created an addicted and talk about that that evolution towards the wild way. Okay, so like. I first, so basically I had quite a few periods of just like not drinking for a month or like doing a couple of months here and there. And, you know, I think something happens the first time you commit to not drinking for a period of time subconsciously, you don't know it, but that means something because Mm. until that point, you haven't felt that you needed to do that. The moment that happens, you started your journey Mm. and there's just something that that a switch that that just changes. Um, And, you know, it was, it was funny how, the worst came a lot after that for me. Like I actually had like, I think three months off, you know, six months off at one point, I was very much like people would look at me and be like, Oh, you can't have had a problem. Like you, you weren't seriously addicted to alcohol because you could have stopped for six months. But then the moment I would start again, it would not take long. And then like, mm-hmm. you know, ticking in and ticking in, it actually got to sort of got to this strange point where I was sort of like, I almost like enjoying being reliant on it. And it was kind of like this odd sort of like, thing that was happening I can't even like explain and you know eventually I ended up uh, in a right old pickle where I was basically just like speed walking home from work like, smashing tins living in Poland like alcohol's <laughs> fucking strong people would, would see me get battered at the weekend but they wouldn't see me drinking all the other nights of the week um my, my job at work was good I was getting more responsibility which was piling even more pressure on me and in the end it was just like crack and yeah I actually managed to leave that behind and I think it was about 19 months I didn't drink for. And, you know, I was just like you. I've nailed this. I've got this nailed. And I went away to India, trained to do yoga teaching, did all sorts, sat on mountains, crying, meditating, you know. remember sitting there thinking, oh, my God, why would I ever want to bring that back into my life? And the strange thing is I got back from India and I did. Like, I think what happened for me was there was one final thread, which was, oh, you've never been this long without it. You've never done two and a half years without drinking. Maybe you've just, you know, maybe you've learned your lesson. And, and, and the strange thing was like, you know, I had, and I actually, it did get pretty, it was pretty shit again. I basically went through a kind of, I don't know what kind of length of time it was. It was only a couple of months, but by the end of it, it didn't get as bad in terms of the amount I was drinking or anything, but the pain, like the inner pain of knowing again was like, was there and it sucked. Mm. Mm. And I realized that, I had got it alone. I had no community. I hadn't really been honest with my family or my friends. I kind of like, they just sort of thought I was having a bit of a hiatus. I hadn't really been true to myself. So unaddicted was me actually properly, fully putting everything out on on the table. Therapy, me, self-therapy, writing. The first time my parents really found out about the extent of what had been going on. Same for a lot of my friends. Um, You know, accountability, community and healing. So yeah, unaddicted has been like a really important thing for me. It's the thing that really moves the dial. Um, I've always been a writer. Like I've been teaching English for, for many, many years. I love writing. So it was just like a creative flow that allowed me to connect with people. It was, it was words of people like um, Hip Sobriety, Holly Whitaker and her, her blogs and things that really like, tap, like hit me when I was reading those late at night. And I was like, oh shit, man. People feel like me. And they're going through what I'm going through, but they know that they're never going to like go to AA. Like, or they know like for me, like the word recovery, like doesn't resonate with me. Like I, for me, it's like, well, when am I recovered? 
but for other people, I get it works. And, and there's so many different modes and so many different ways. Unaddicted was me finding my way. And the wild way is the slight evolution of that, which is it has everything within it, but it's all the things you need after you've been through the, once you've left alcohol behind, you, you kind of don't really feel like you're necessarily white knuckling, but you're like, you're feeling stable, but you want to up level. You're like, you know, I'm at this point, like maybe my sleep isn't right. Maybe I could be eating better. You're given all this time. You're given all this energy. You're given all this love. You're given all this freedom. And you're like, what am I going to do with this shit? Like, that's what that's for. That's what the wild way is for. Is like going back out there, learning to like completely work with everything, all aspects of your health, spiritual, you know, energetic in terms of food, like, um, like movement, like proper functional movement so that you're not hurting yourself accidentally. You know, all these different things that I just wasn't doing, you know, I just wasn't doing them. I'd stopped drinking and I was like, oh, that's it. I've done that. Yeah. But I got to a point where I wanted more. <laughs> when did you start to get interested in coaching. So there's a big difference between having a blog and, you know, you could be a teacher and then at night you write in your blog and that's it. You can build a big following, whatever. But there's a leap that happens when you say, okay, I'm going to coach somebody to help them. Why did that happen? That happened because I, so I've been teaching for, for about 10, yeah, almost 10 years now. I was basically away for a lot doing like sort of teaching English as a foreign language and like, I, yeah, it was really good. I worked in some really good schools. I had a really good time. I came home. I'd been away for like seven or eight years. Uh, I kind of felt like I wanted to come home to see. I didn't think I was going to like it, but I came back to the UK basically just as a bit of a trial. Um, and actually, it went really well. Um, and I met my partner, like, and I just, my brother was in Liverpool. So I thought, I'll come and give this a go. Um, and as I started to settle, um, I know that like routine kind of sets me free. So the sort of irony of it is that I need to, or the kind, not the irony, but the kind of paradox of routine for me is that it definitely frees me up to be like a lot more out there and adventurous. and, and, Hmm. And I think as I started to go into state school teaching, as I retrained here, and I still do that, I coach in school, um, and I still teach, but in my heart of hearts, I kind of know that like, it's that values thing. Like I, kind of just started to get that little bit of like guilt where I was like, mm, this isn't a hundred percent right. Like this isn't exactly what I want to be doing. I don't want to, I can't like energetically, like doing this five days a week is just not where I want to be. So I went on a search, man. I, was, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I pretty much stumbled across, it's quite strange. You'd think I'd know all about coaching, what was unaddicted being all over Instagram, but I hadn't really hit my radar. It wasn't right. really something kind of knew about obviously teaching and mentoring is something that I've been doing for a long long time but you know, coaching is different because you're not you're not really like te- in its purest form you're not teaching anything you're just mm. like unlocking people's potential so I went to a two-day coaching uh like three day course like and it was great man and I was just like oh shit this is a me-shaped hole like this mm. is something amazing this uh, this is the glue that allows me to take 10 years of teaching training as a yoga teacher traveling you know stopping drinking all of these things that seemed sort of like disconnect and like just glue them all together um, as something that I could really make a difference with people and also start to build a life that I really wanted. You know, I wanted to feel more free. I wanted to feel like I was more of a master of my time. I wanted to feel like I was creating and like doing things that light me up. I like that. I like that me-shaped hole. 
<laughs> that's going on Instagram later on. That one is. I'm going to steal that. I'm going to steal that one off you. Um, what are, What have been the issues that you found with people through um, an addicted and working with people in the wild way? What are the problems that are out there, particularly uh, for men? Like, what are What are the issues that I'm I'm really interested in? Men between 35 and 45 who, you know, of of uh, how can I put it? Like we talked about earlier on, like. They've just been zombies, like for most of their life. They've got the house, they've got the job, they've got the wife, they've got the kids, but they're not really present in any of them. And they're, they're still kids, really, like we're going out and getting wrecked with the lads and all that kind of stuff. And then they suddenly realize, I don't think this is right. Like, what, what are some of the problems you've been finding? And how have you been helping guide them to find like resolutions? I think being a man now is. It's a really inter- It's just an interesting discussion because, you know, for me, I, I really don't feel like I'm your typical like lad. Never have been. I've never been like the kind of old school, old mode like masculine. However, I'm strong, and I know that I can talk to people um, and, and help to wake them up. And that's like, I don't know. It's a really interesting question you've asked me there. That's like so much of like what we do, isn't it? Well, it's this like being a modern warrior and like what that means to you and like who, how are you going to talk to people? How are you going to create your version of being a man? And like, are you going to continue to play the old programs that society has told you to play? And are you going to sit there smashing tins and watching whatever it is? Or are you going to wake the fuck up and realize that actually being a man is about being strong, but that, but within that is about being vulnerable and it's about being emotional and it's about being, if you want to like, I mean, I love calisthenics. I love like balancing and doing silly handstands and all sorts of shit. But if you take those things that are masculine and try and make them a part of your sense of self, you end up fucked up because you're not authentic and you're not real. So it's about figuring out who you are. What version of a man do you want to be? And if people don't like it, if you're surrounded by people that don't think that's Matt like, screw that. Like, don't be around people that think like that, in my opinion. What have you found traveling around? Um, you travel around a lot. How does masculinity or the definition of masculinity change from country to country? Oh, bloody hell, man. That is a question. Um, I mean, I spent a lot of time in Australia. Australia, I sat and listened to, I mean, so I was out in the desert for a while, just working in like a petrol station for about a year. And I have sat in the local pub and listened to some conversations that are beyond outrageous. Like I could have, I mean, blew my actual mind in terms of like attitudes towards women or attitudes towards um, just all sorts, man. Mm. I think you would have been like in the 1700s. It was absolutely outrageous. Um, however, I met some of the most beautiful people I've ever met out there as well. So, I mean, I, and I think that's true everywhere. I think that the, the common version of masculinity in a lot of places, be it South America, be it Poland, be it, you know, Australia, be it um, anywhere is, I mean, it's a bit, it can be toxic. It can be a toxic thing. Um, But there are always beautiful people there. And there are always, you know, people like subcultures that are doing things totally different. I would say that Poland was a challenge at times. Um, Again, I met some beautiful, beautiful people there. But there are a lot of people who are quite bigoted, quite backwards in their thought. It's all based in fear. It's because I think there's there's just not much multiculturalism there. There's not many people of colour. There's not many people. There's just not many people there that have like come in from outside of Poland. Hmm. Um, 
And I think along with that, there's like quite traditional roles in terms of, um, you know, the kind of like male female like relationship and, and how that plays out and how that operates. Um, and the kind of like typical, like tank of a dude that's walking around. But I've had some really funny interactions, man. I had a guy who was about literally about five times the size of me walk up to me in a gym, like it, like in a gym changing room. Okay. I was obviously just like, Oh my God, what's he going to do to me? He's there when he's budgie smugglers and he's in his like, in his little pants and he just hands me his phone. And in English, he just says picture. And I was like, Oh, right. Okay. So I had to take a picture of this guy <laughs> in the middle of this gym changing room. Um, and to me, I was like, dear God, like when I walked into that, like some of the things that the guys were doing, well, like, like it, it was just not the kind of thing that you would think somebody who thought like that would be doing. Like the way that they were like, like touching each other's muscles and like, and I was like, wow, this is like, this is so funny how these things play out in different cultures and like what, what is okay and what isn't. Um, I had many, many friends in Poland who were gay, but I tell you this much, like people in, most people in Poland, their gaydar is just broken, man. They can't, they just have no idea. It's hilarious. It doesn't work. Just does not work. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. It's really different. Um, I suppose most places you go, I'm sure you've found the same thing. It's one thing that, that actually makes me feel positive about the UK. Like it has many, many problems, but I think a lot of them are more visible because as much as there are a lot of people doing some pretty messed up stuff here, there are also a lot of people who are really woke to use the 2020 term. Hmm. Um, and I think it, it displays it more than somewhere like Spain where like, you know, it's maybe a lot more just sort of like accepted for there kind of to be this kind of like toxic masculinity that's like bubbling beneath the surface. Hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know. That's literally my perception on it. Other people may very well disagree. With me. <laughs> I, I thank you for that. You know, I, you're, I mean, I'm always interested when people travel around because, of course, I, I grew up just immersed in toxic masculinity. There was a, there was a very stereotype um, of masculinity, and it, it was, and it revolved around sex, having lots of it, not caring about women, treating women like they were meat, um, drinking lots, taking drugs, smoking, fighting was a big thing. Um, and the demeaning of a people who were weaker than you. So when I was growing up, being called gay, you know, or a puff was something that you really didn't want to be called because you felt at the time that if you did that, like, that was it. You would have no friends. You know, there was, and there was nobody at home talking to you about those things. So you just grew up thinking that this was life. And I don't really don't think it was until I joined the poker industry when I was about 35 and I started traveling around the world and that I realized that, holy shit, you know, like one of my biggest flaws, if you like, is that I do suffer from self-perception theory a lot. Like it's a little, it's a little bit like cultivation theory when people are watching telly and they think telly is real life. Yeah. Like my self-perception theory is that like life is like Ogmore Vale. And my wife's from Los Angeles and, and every now and then when I, I'll slip into something like, yeah, all men are like this. And then Liza will say, no, 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 all men in Ogmore Vale might be like that. <laughs> but in the re but that's like, like, like a, a grain of sand in the world. So I think somehow being able to break free from that and open yourself up to um, expose different cultures and different ways of being is like vastly important. And again, I, I keep banging onto it. I don't think any of that would have happened had I not stopped drinking. 
because that decision to stop drinking gave me the power to quit my job, which gave me the power to uh, deal with uh, a divorce. It gave me the power to just take that leap and, and travel yeah. around. There'll be a lot of people there going, wow, you, you went to Australia and worked in a gas station. Like, just getting on a flight and going to Australia or, or going to Poland, like, it's, it's scary shit for some people, you know? It's enough of a scary thing that I think it's, as you say, it really can be the difference. Like I have quite a few people I've known, you know, friends from like, you know, the deeps of Scotland where like they, all those things you talk about were true. They grew up with like, you know, fighting and, you know, everybody was you know basically interested in getting muscles, drinking beer, you know, mm. getting laid and like treating everybody like shit, you know, and you, you even treat your mates like shit because that's what everybody did because it was funny or whatever. And yeah, like it's funny how if someone in that in that circle of friends, and I and I know this, I see it, I've repeated it, and a lot of people that I'm very close to, they are people that have escaped. And the reason they've escaped is because shit got so desperate that they had to do something desperate. So they went and taught English in Poland, or they, you know, got on a, wherever and went travelling, or they, for whatever reason, they had some grace in their life, and then they. What, and, and you know, it's more than the conversations you have. There's like this subconscious chipping away with every person you speak to, with every airport you walk through, with every conversation you have on an aeroplane and every whatever it is you're doing, there's this slow, slow, slow thing that's happening underneath, bubbling away in your subconscious. And then eventually, like, I think you sort of through experience more than just being told. And like, how much more powerful is that? Sometimes you just sit there one day and you go, yeah, you don't, you know what, like, absolutely what am i thinking like of course it's fine if you're gay you know mm. and people can have those breakthroughs mm. because they they realize that the program they've been running isn't there mm. and those those sort of like I, I think you're right i think just being forced to be vulnerable and forced to be in a situation where you're on your own emotionally and physically can have some real like magical effects on people in terms of like helping them shift and make shifts um mm. I think it's really powerful. I also respect people that don't travel and like, you know, I think that's a really powerful choice as well because I think actually staying in the same place can be like <laughs> a, I mean, that's, well, that's strong, man. If you stay in the same place your whole life and figure some shit out, like, wow, that's powerful too. Like, I have massive respect for that because mm. I couldn't do it. I get itchy after about 10 minutes. I mean, the last two years is the longest. So me and my girlfriend have just bought a house together. Um, it's really great. We're both travellers. We haven't done a lot of travelling because of what's been going on recently. And it's really weird. You know, we've got to know each other, like, in, a, in the same place. And we're looking forward to going away. But actually, it's been really nice to have the opposite as well. You got your, you got, you, you're looking forward to building a nest. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It is interesting to talk about these things because we do live in a strange old time. So, like, I'm, I'm in Los Angeles at the moment. And um, we... My, I live with my in-laws. So my, my father-in-law will come home from his tailor business, which has collapsed because of COVID. And then he'll, as soon as he walks through the door, his food's on the table and uh, he'll put the telly on. And, and, and he'll eat on his own while we're all having telly in the, in the room. And he's been watching the um, basketball. And over here, when you have basketball, and there's an advert every I don't know, five minutes or something. And all you get in at the moment is people standing up for Donald Trump talking about how amazing he is and how screwed up Joe Biden is. And as I'm listening to this in the kitchen, I said to Liza, this is the first time in 45 years I've ever heard this. I don't know whether I've just not listened to it, whether it doesn't happen in the UK, but I have never been exposed to, to this desperation 
this fake, this uh, like lack of integrity and trying to drive and change people's lives and minds to vote by using color and sexuality and gender as, as like a fucking porn, like chess pieces. It's fucking horrendous. Like, and I imagine if you're someone struggling to drink alcohol or take drugs or whatever it is, or smoking, and you're stuck in the house with lockdown and you got that fucking shit going on in the background. Like you, you need people like you opening up the wild way and saying, Hey, come on, you know, there's a, let me, let me teach you a little bit about Eckhart's Hall, you know? Yeah. Like come sit around the campfire and actually look up at the sky and like, you know, yeah. come and, come and, but you know, people are stuff so addictive, man. This stuff is so addictive. You know, you've got people that those adverts look like that because they've got the world's best psychologist sat behind them going, oh, if you do this and do this, and they've made 10 different versions of that sodden advert. One's yellow, one's blue, one's brown, one's green. And they've fucking run them all and they've figured out that the blue one works best. So that's the one they put out in Arizona. And they put, and it's just yeah. like, holy shit. Like you got, you know, all the data collection going on and all this shit and they know they've got us. And even if you don't think they do, to some extent, there's such masters at tapping into the subconscious, you have to be really careful. Like That's the way you have to turf the shit out, especially if you stop drinking or something like that. You've got to go in and clean it every now and again because that shit is still going in. Mm-hmm. Like I've lost count of the amount of people that have never smoked who tell me that cigarettes relax you. I have lost count mm-hmm. of the amount of people that don't really drink that tell me the benefits of drinking. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what the fuck? Like you bet that's learned behavior. Like what is it that makes us pick that thing up in the first place? Like what is it that makes us like do something outrageous, like smoke against all of the, you know, now the health stuff. And, you know, we're still battling against a lot of lies with alcohol. That's not the case with smoking anymore. People still do it, you know, because they still believe shit. The, the, the record that's playing from 25 years ago. I think the smoking one is a really, uh, really important one actually, because I, I just started helping people quit smoking. And it's been really interesting because on the base of it, you think to yourself, well, smoking is very different to alcohol because everybody knows it's going to give you cancer, it's going to kill you, and there's no benefits to it, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's so fucking clear cut. But actually, when you get talking to people, bear in mind the advertisement is in, in the way that it used to be advertised on telly and all this like super cool thing. It's still the people who are coming up to me, they still have been hoodwinked to believe that it's cool as fucking provider. And it, it, I tell you, like, it's got to be the amount of TV we watch, like Netflix, movies, like all of a sudden when you're teaching this thing, like what was I watching yesterday? Um, so as I'm brushing my teeth, I'm watching this movie called The Old Guard. So because mm-hmm. I don't have time to watch TV anymore, it takes me like two weeks to watch a movie while I'm brushing my teeth. <laughs> but Charlie Theron is in there. And it's about these, uh, these people who um, are immortal and they're trying to save the world, right? And there's this scene. She's on an airplane. And she's a badass, immortal woman, a warrior, and she finds a crate of vodka and she picks it up and she just fucking drinks it. And in that moment, as someone helping people cut alcohol, I'm like, why did they just put that scene in? Because there's a reason for everything, right? And, And then you realize it's like, oh, wow, they're telling you that even immortal people need to relax because of the pressures of the world. And that's how you do it. And the, the bigger the weight you have, the more hardcore you need to go. Like, that to me was like fucking straight away. But to someone who's not quitting alcohol and they see that, the same message is getting in there. They just don't know it's getting in, like you said, right? 
Hundred percent. There's a guy called Jason Vale. You probably I don't know if you've come across him. He wrote a book called How to. He actually trained under Alan Carr. Yeah, I read his. I read his book. I found it a little bit like too like Alan Carr's, but I read it. I thought it was really useful. I read it. I read it not long after Alan Carr's. Yeah. But he draws the. He's got an app, and he draws the analogy. I think he's talking about Independence Day. When uh, is it Will Smith who doesn't smoke cigars, or or the other guy who's with him, Jeff Goldblum? One of them doesn't smoke cigars. Anyway, they blow up the alien ship, whatever they do, and like they passes a cigar to the guy next to him and they have a massive token of this cigar and then just like, you know, ah, it's kind of like, this is what you do at the end of the world. You've defeated the aliens, you smoke a cigar. When, you know, he makes the point that like, if you don't smoke, like that is not the reaction you'd have. You'd be coughing and spluttering and trying yeah, to jump. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's their rank the first time you smoke them. But it's, you're right, it's that message. It's that subconscious message. And it's the same reason why kids until they're, you know, 13, 14, 15, who've got parents who smoke in the house, swear blind, they will never smoke. And then they pick up a cigarette yeah. because all they've seen 14 years is every time their mum and dad are pissed off, what do they do? They pick up a cigarette. They assume it must relax. So they grab the cigarette. So it's one of those things that like almost everything you intuitively think is correct about addiction psychology is fucking backward. Yeah. This is what I seem to find. A lot of the things that you think that must be the case using willpower must be the most effective way to stop or doing this must be, they're all like, once you get into it and start to understand this stuff, you realize that no, that's not how most of it works. There was um, even, um, I mean, this is a little bit more nuanced, right? But I was been watching the last dance on Netflix, the, um, okay. or the Michael Jordan thing. And you watch him and he's like this supreme athlete. And you're like, whoa, like this guy's awesome. And then they cut to him, don't they? Just sitting on his own in his, in his <laughs> uh, million dollar kind of apartment. And he's either smoking a cigarette or he's drinking whiskey neat. And I don't know if they're setting that up or whatever, because there's no reason for it to be there. It might just be that the guy said, do you mind if I smoke and, and drink while I'm do, doing my shot? But if you're watching that as a kid, you're thinking to yourself, well, even a superhero like Michael Jordan, who has everything in the world, he's, he's drinking whiskey neat and smoking a cigar. Like, there has to be something that kind of clicks it like, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, it's like even your most screwed up characters, like what was I watching the other day? Goliath um, with Billy Bob Thornton. He's like a lawyer. I say the other day, this is like a couple of years ago. He's a down and out bum. Like he, he's like a, a drunk. You can't get his shit together. But there's something kind of like sexy, cool about him, the way they're shooting it. Yeah, yeah. You're watching this loser suddenly drink and then you feel like, kind of empathy with him and then he manages to still get over it and bag the lady and destroy the company while completely smashed off his tits and you know what this is why the coolest and most subversive thing you will ever do is to not drink it's the most badass decision you can make in society today because most people are not doing it and i tell you what is way more badass than sitting in your own vomit smoking cigarettes and drinking whiskey is learning how to have an incredible time without any of it. Because it's, it's not that it's, it's uh, I don't know, it's just the authenticity behind it. And that, that is how we're built. Like we are evolutionary animals that are designed to walk into a social situation, feel a bit weird for a bit, and then start feeling good. And once you bounce off of people and start to have fantastic social interactions, you get high and then you start to feel naturally really great. And you go home and you feel like you're buzzed, like you can't really sleep, like you feel like energized because we are built to do that shit. And the problem is that when people who are addicted to alcohol remove it and they have a shit time at a party, 
they just assume that therefore the opposite is true, that alcohol mm. causes the good time. Mm. We all know the amount of times we've been out and got pissed and had a crap night. What's the difference? The difference is good people, good times, good chats, good dancing, good music. Yeah. That is the difference. That's the stuff. So we need to stop giving alcohol so much credit. We need yeah, to start realizing that the badass cool choice is to not drink and to go out if you want to do that and enjoy yourself without it. And just if somebody comes and tells you why don't you drink, it's your decision whether you tell them or not. And at the end of the day, if someone's being a knobhead about it, just don't answer them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I don't drink. And That's take, it. take responsibility as well. So like when you walk into that room, you're right, it is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for extroverts as well as introverts, right? But think about this, you know, like anybody walks into a room, if you are able to be vulnerable enough to reach out to someone and start talking, not about sh- shit, but about seriously, about, about real serious stuff that you, they're bothered. When someone says, how are you doing? That, well, you know, actually, sometimes I'm up, sometimes I'm down, but right now I'm really kind of got this thing in my head because I haven't seen my son for eight months and I'm feeling a little bit ashamed about it. If you're able to do that, you're giving that person a gift. Like people yeah. say, people say to me, how is it that you're able to fit in all the time with, with, with people? Well, it's it's not that. It's just that I'm willing to be the first one that opens my gob. And then everyone else is like, oh, my God, he just talked and he's open. So I could talk to him and be open as well. So, what you know, responsibility is really important as well. I think. My missus laughs at me, man. I'm the, I am definitely not the king of small talk. I'll be talking about, like the, you know, the however many pillars of Zen Buddhism within about three <laughs> But, you know, on the final thing on that, like, something that really helped me, I can't even remember where I read it, but, like, everybody who walks into the party, they think they're the big stick man, right? And everyone's the little stick man. Everyone feels like that. Everybody lives from the inside out. We don't live from the outside in. We live from what's happening internally. Um, And we think very often we're we're convinced it's the other people in the party that are making us feel the way that we are, but it's us. And if we can get out of our own way and asking a damn good question or just going in, going... Look, you know, I'm not the greatest conversationist. So what I'm going to do is interview. I'm going to go and find out two really cool things about three people I haven't met before, right? Put the onus on them and get interested in what they're saying. Get good at listening, like you've been saying, we've been saying. Practice that skill. Then you'll get out your own way. And suddenly you'll be like, oh, shit, I've been enjoying myself for half an hour. Because that really is the difference. Because sometimes you have those nights where you just like, you hate the whole thing and you go home and you're like, oh, crap. But if you have three in a row where that doesn't happen, then the, it's that subconscious experiential level of like, mm. like your belief system starts to change. That's magic. Um, and I, that's one reason why I do, if people want to encourage them to not necessarily socialize in areas, places where there's alcohol if they don't want to, but definitely socialize, not to yeah. just sit up and just like wait it out. Yeah. Get out of your own way and get on the yeah. wild way. There's an advert to, to what. Um, if you are interested to learn more about Sam's work, Go to www.1000daysober.com. You'll find uh, a podcast page. You click on it and you'll find Sam's little own home there. We'll have a, an extensive load of show notes and all links to his work. Uh, Sam, really appreciate it. It's been amazing uh, Thanks, talking to you and keep up the good work, yeah? Yeah, man. You too. Really, really nice. 